Hey everyone, this is Connor. Before we get started, I just want to encourage you to check out our Patreon, patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. If you become a patron, you'll get access to multiple exclusive episodes every month. And you can also join our patrons-only Discord chat, where Pete and I talk informally with the Podside Picnic community. So if you like the show, go ahead and check us out at patreon.com slash podsidepicnic. Thanks. Hey everyone, welcome back to Podside Picnic. I am not joined today by the redoubtable Pete. Uh, as all as often happens, he's out investigating some strange occurrences in the Nevada desert. Don't know what's up with that. I'm sure he'll be back soon, but I am joined by yet another very special guest. She is a writer of great renown, the author of the acclaimed short story collection, which was a National Book Award finalist. Sabrina and Karina, and she's also a dear friend of mine. Welcome, Kali Fajardo Anstein. Hi, Connor. Thank you for having me. I think I should put in my bio Connor's good friend at the end of all my bios now. <laughs> but I am excited. I'm excited to be here. Thank you. It's really exciting to have you on. Um, we've mentioned your book a couple of times on here. Uh, I've mentioned it on Twitter. Uh, yeah, Sabrina and Karina, everyone... Go, ch- go pick it up wherever books are sold. You'll enjoy it. It's phenomenal. I mean, there's others who said many, many great things about it. I, I vouch for it as well. As well. Um, yeah. And Kali's had a, a pretty whirlwind couple of years, I think, putting that book out and promoting it. And she has a novel coming out in the future. And there's just a lot of exciting stuff going on. Am I right? Yeah. Yeah. It's been a whirlwind two years. And I think yeah, it's it's um, interesting to think about like what the next two years will bring because it took so long to get to this point, and now I'm like, wow, things can change really quickly. Um, so yeah, I'm excited for the next the next bit of this. Yeah, Kali is one of the most sort of swashbuckling and intrepid writers I know, and she's out there doing really great things. Um, Aw, thank you. <laughs> you're most welcome, and you know. I definitely want to talk some more about your book, but, you know, this being primarily a science fiction and fantasy podcast, uh, I think this interview will be a little bit different than some of the ones you've done, because I'm really interested in the influence that genre fiction has had on you and what you think about how that relates to your career in literary fiction and the literary world generally, et cetera, et cetera. So I want to kick this off by by uh, sort of prodding you a little bit and saying I've seen you mention in a few places, uh, like on Twitter, various interviews, that uh, there were some sci-fi fantasy writers that have been important to you as you became a reader and writer, especially as a kid. Um, Who were they and why was their work important to you? Yeah, I mean, that's a... No one ever asked me about this, so thank you. Um, Normally, I I just don't get a... Like, people are not like, what are the sci-fi fantasy writers that shaped you, realist writer? Um, But I... Yeah, there's quite a few, actually. So one of my ultimate favorite writers when I was a teenager and into my 20s is Kurt Vonnegut. And I I still remember distinctively when I read Slaughterhouse-Five for the first time and just just that space of being able to time travel and how absorbed and just thrown into the book I was. 
Um, I was also a pretty big Margaret Atwood fan when I was in high school. Oryx and Crake um, was it like a huge favorite of mine. And I, I, I loved like being in that feminist uh, sci-fi space. Also, like I'm a, a Harry Potter person. <laughs> so in, including that in fantasy, um, Arthur C. Clarke was really important to me. Child, childhood's End in particular. Um, yeah, like I can just like, keep going on. Octavia Butler. Um, but yeah, a lot of my influences are sci-fi and fantasy. And it even extends into film and TV. Um, and I think that's in one of my short stories, Tomi, um, which is a story about a woman who's recently been released from prison and she's helping her nephew who's in middle school learn how to read better. And she's going through all these different exercises they can do for that short story. I invented, um, a text within the text and, uh, the book I invented is like an Aztec science fiction series. Uh, so yeah, I am, I'm very interested in, in sci-fi and fantasy and it's just something that it comes out a little bit in my work and I think it'll come out more in the future. Uh, but yeah, I would, I'd love for realist writers to be able to talk about this more. Yeah. Okay. That was interesting. I, I heard you mention some of those names before, like Atwood, um, Vonnegut. I, I have to admit that when you first told me you were into Arthur C. Clarke, I was a little bit blown away. Um, <laughs> Just because, like, he is so much the king of hard sci-fi, of, like, popular mechanics, here's how things work sci-fi, of sci-fi that doesn't really have... The, the characters that are so flat that I feel, like, flat even over... <laughs> it's almost like they're, they're zero-dimensional characters. And maybe I'm being a little bit unkind here, but, I mean, you kind of see what I'm saying. It's, it's a long... Yeah. It's a far cry from what you do. Well, that's that's okay. I mean, not everything needs to be on this level of like extremely high literature in order to have value. Also, like I was younger, but one of the reasons, and this happens to me a lot, I think one of the reasons I was into Arthur C. Clarke is because I worked at this used bookstore for years and years, for like 15 years off and on, Westside Books in Denver. And we would have, we had books of all sorts, but some of our specialties were like books on the American West. Um, we had a lot of Buddhism. We had a lot of like feminist studies, but we also had like a ton of paperback science fiction novels, like dime store novels, essentially. And so I was just being exposed to a lot of writing that I probably would never come across like in a classroom setting. And then I think Modest Mouse, I think one of the moon in Antarctica, I think it has some references to Arthur C. Clarke. And I was I was really into Modest Mouse when I was younger. All of these things is when I when I was younger. I'm, I've changed now. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you're a mature, sophisticated literary woman now. We know. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, that's OK. So that, I mean, that makes perfect sense. Like, I think that one thing we come across a lot on this show, especially with my co-host, Pete, Science fiction and fantasy are often part of that kind of capacious, eclectic literary education you get from just being a curious reader rather than what's handed to you in a university syllabus. And it sounds like that's a lot. That's been a lot of your development as a reader, right? Yeah, definitely. Like, I think my development in the classroom was important um, for my background in Chicana and Chicano studies in particular. But I think when it came to like, my formative text, I wasn't really getting those from my, no offense to my English program as an undergrad, but I wasn't really getting those from my literature courses where we were reading just the same old, same old. 
Um, but instead, yeah, it was definitely like the readers coming into the bookstore and like the obsessed stranger in a strange land readers, you know, and like I would just learn and pick up on things from them. Also, I think my parents are pretty big sci-fi people. Like they gave me Dune when I was like, <laughs> at, like in middle school and I'm like, I'm not going to read Dune. <laughs> like, yeah. So I think it, it's just like the culture and the family, like outside of the classroom space was these are these are sci-fi nerds. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, there's there's always that that really unfortunate sense that like Dune is a book you get given when you're 12 or 13, and then it's supposed to somehow like wither away as you get older. And I, and I, and I think it's nice that we're in a cultural moment where we can finally say like, yeah, why not give Dune pride of place? We don't have to pretend that we grow up and just read Anna Karenina all the time. Not that there's anything wrong with Anna Karenina, but you know. <laughs> we read, yeah, my dad also gave me the um, Tolkien books, and I absolutely detested The Hobbit, so I didn't get in to that <laughs> <laughs> why did you why did you detest the hobbit i don't know i was like this is a book for boys i remember like specifically like yelling that at my dad like there's not a woman in this book and like he didn't he had never even like thought of it but the, I, I thought the <laughs> hobbit was just like an endlessly painful thing i did <laughs> i won't disagree with you that, that about any of that that it's a book for boys with no women in it i will say though that i think it's kind of incredible that you thought that about the Hobbit and not like Dune or Arthur C. Clarke, but I guess Dune has someone in it. <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, I was, I was, my, my wokeness and my perceptiveness hadn't been fully like awakened, I guess. <laughs> you, your, your wokeness wasn't awake. I love that. That's yeah. a good, uh, that's a good yeah. line. I'm going to steal that. Um, <laughs> so, I mean, you know, I, do you, do you read uh, much of this stuff, sci-fi, fantasy, what we call, I mean, again, I hate the term speculative fiction because it's so broad. It can include straight up genre stuff all the way to literary stuff. That's even a little bit unrealistic. It's a silly term, but like how much of this do you read now? And do you kind of find yourself going back to any of this that you read before? Sort of. I, I think in terms of like the way I consume a lot of it now is um, there's a lot of short story writers that are publishing work. That's like boundary pushing in this way. Um, Leslie Neka Arima, her book, um, when a man falls from the sky, uh, her short stories, they tend to have the speculative element and I really, I really enjoy them. Um, I've been excited and interested in Jeff Vandermeer's work. Uh, I haven't read any like full, full books yet, but I am interested and <laughs> I'm a, alert about it. Um, there was a debut novelist, Michael Zapata, that he just published his first book, The Lost Book of Adana Moreau. And that book within the book has a central text as a science fiction novel from the 1920s. So I think I, I'm like aware of it and I'm interested in it. It's not my go-to genre. Uh, I still like I've gravitated more toward like hard realist works. Um, but I am like in my own work, I definitely want to like explore it more. And I'm also not somebody who cares too much about boundaries of genre. Like I, I wouldn't even, I don't even consider them. So, it's, so to me, it's like, if it pops up in a book I'm reading, like, this is great. I love it. Um, yeah. But I also, I consume a lot of science fiction and fantasy through other mediums. Um, like I was thinking like, you know, Battlestar Galactica, like I binged that whole thing. Like I love the magicians like TV show and yeah. So a lot of it I'm consuming through film. 
Cool. So it's my next question. I was going to ask you, you maybe already answered it, but like what you think about <laughs> these, these so-called genre boundaries and the permeability of them. Obviously, we're in a cultural moment where the boundary between so-called genre fiction and so-called literary fiction is ever more permeable, but also there are different constituencies and institutions in all of those camps that are trying to pull back and, and claim things for themselves. It's kind of a confusing time. Uh, and I guess you're saying you just don't care that much about it. <laughs> well, I think that they, I think boundaries and categorization serves a purpose and it's more for the, um, the readers than for the writers so when I worked at the bookstore, I one of my jobs was I would go around and I would gather like like books and create little displays throughout the store. And sometimes I would get irritated, like, why do we have to have like a women fiction writer display? Like, shouldn't we be included with all the general fiction just as we are? And my boss explained to me, like, oh, we need to do this so readers can find them easier um, and be able to like pinpoint, oh, this is what I'm looking for. And so I think pulling things out, having it as a category allows the readers of that, those kinds of books to know what they're, they're getting into. But for me, when I sit down to write, I don't ever like think like, oh, today I'm going to put on my like genre writer cap. Like I just write anything I want. And then sometimes um, some of my ideas tend to be more on that speculative side or I borrow from genre. Um, but yeah, so I, I definitely think of it in like two, like there's just two ways that you can look at the this boundary pushing. And I think some of it is like, yeah, the publishers need to get these books out and people need to know what to buy and it can help with marketing in that sense. But I'm not sure that we necessarily need to have these strict boundaries. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I think that looking at it in if if we like marketing sounds like a dirty word to us serious writers right because we're like oh the marketing is the thing that the people who don't understand your work do to try to make money from it that's not what we do as writers and like i get that impulse but you're saying something i think really important which is that um we have to think about what readers want and actually i think this is something that that in literary circles like in mfa circles uh we sometimes obscure to our own detriment, which is that like, ultimately you're trying to do the best thing you can for the reader, for a reader. Um, you're not, you know, like it, I think if you abstract too much from that, you get into some, you can get into some pretty unfortunate territory. So yeah. I mean, are you saying that like the mo the most impaired, I mean, I don't trying to put words in your mouth, but like that this is sort of a way of reaffirming the, like the reader ultimately comes first. <laughs> reader comes first but I definitely think the reader exists you know and I think that like <laughs> I mean I hope the reader exists I so I was like I was laughing when you were bringing up this this MFA like way of thinking where uh, we should never write to the market and like who cares about a reader and like I don't think you should go around like tailoring your work to a market and all that but I do think that like if, if we didn't have readers it wouldn't matter it's like a tree falling in a forest with no one around to hear it like, I understand that, like, it still feels good to make art and I, I would write even if I didn't have readers, but I, I'm, like, very aware that they exist and I want more of them to exist and I'm happy they exist and I want to know what they think and I want them to be interested. And, yeah, I, I do think that, like, in some ways, like, serious literary fiction kind of pretends like there are no readers. 
and sci-fi and genre and fantasy like definitely don't pretend that <laughs> like they know that there are readers. Yeah, I think that's a really really great way of putting it. Um, I think this is kind of one reason I've sort of gravitated more towards sci-fi and fantasy and gotten more and more interested in them is precisely that reason. It's this sort of like inherent respect and valuing of all aspects of the reader's time right under the level of like, well, we want you to enjoy this, <laughs> which like you start using words like enjoyment, entertainment uh, in literary circles. And I think people start to get defensive and suspicious, um, perhaps, you know, rightly so in some cases. But I, it, it's interesting to me. Um, I, I think that one theory that I've worked on that I, I'd love to get your take on is the more time I spend around sort of quote unquote literary fiction circles in MFAs and so on and so forth. And after living in New York for a while, like you're right. I think people tend to posit that, that the, you know, that there isn't a reader or that you're um, you're not writing towards just an ordinary reader. And I think that that like what that does is creates the audience then becomes other writers and a set of institutions, you know, that can confer awards or can help you accrue prestige. And like, I'm not sure that like writing for sort of that kind of narrow specific circle is somehow better or, more, or superior to just writing for the enjoyment of the average person, you know? Yeah. I, I, I would never say like better or worse on that scale. I just think we, we tend to forget that we are in the entertainment industry. <laughs> like you write, I mean, books are a form of art. Literature is a form of art, but at, at some, you know, at some point you have to realize that you're taking, you're, you're taking hours and hours of people's time. You know, sometimes it's like a month that they're taking to read a novel. So there has to be some level of like, what am I gaining from this? Um, and I, I think there's nothing wrong with creating work that's accessible and interesting and entertaining. And I think it can do, it can do what high literature does while also being those things. And if you want to write books that are not doing that at all, and you're just like interested in some formalist, like complex, <laughs> like, I don't know, treatise or something like that's fine. Make that kind of work too. Um, but just be aware that like we can have different kinds of works and different levels. Yeah. I mean, I think the way that I've started to say it to myself is like, you should always be writing for a, I would say a quote unquote ordinary reader, even if that reader is like 80 people, like it's like a very tiny group, but it's still not about the institutions or the prestige. That's just where I'm at currently. But like, I, I want to ask you, speaking of being an entertainer, well, first of all, I want to give you a compliment, um, which is that you talk about being an entertainer and kind of communing with readers. And I have to say like, your ability to do that, uh, you know, on Instagram and elsewhere and your, your sort of tireless devotion doing in-person events, you know, up until the last couple of months. <laughs> um, I, I really I really admire that. I think that like uh, a lot of readers and different a lot of writers in different genres could learn a lot from what you're doing. So that's just me. That's me buttering you up a little bit. Oh, <laughs> thank you. Well, I do come from a long line of performers. <laughs> But I appreciate that. Thank you. Uh, yeah, you're welcome. Um, yeah, I mean, and you, yeah, I think that like embracing that we're entertainers, it's interesting for writers because so many writers are very solitary, not necessarily social. Like it's, we're a weird group of people, right? Um, some of us are more impresario than others. But speaking of impresario entertainment, I mean, you mentioned, obviously you have touched on sort of, you've posited like, you know, fantasy or sci-fi or speculative fiction in your work. Um, we talked about your experience reading it and we talked about how it influences when you sit down to write, which is that you're sort of intuitively drawing on all these sources. Have you considered writing uh, your own 
instance of these genres? Have you considered getting really fantastical in your own work? Yeah, I have, in fact. Um, so my my next book is a novel, and like while it's not it's not like a science fiction novel, or you wouldn't call it like speculative, or you know. But there, <laughs> I think. Okay, so there's this term magic realism that gets thrown around sometimes, especially when we're talking about work um, by Latinx authors. And I've, I've heard that term used a little bit for my novel that's set in the 1890s and the 1930s in the Old West in Denver and further south in Colorado. Uh, I would never call it magic realism. I think that some of the, you know, there's some things that are happening that maybe would be considered fantasy or like, how is that possible? And so I think this brings up a really interesting point culturally for writers like me. Um, a lot of what happens in my culture, like people having visions or dreams or very strong psychic um, impulses, that is just like part of our life. Um, people seeing ghosts in my family is like some members of the family see ghosts, you know? And some of those things would be considered genre horror or you know fantasy but to me it's still a form of realism so i think that's like in my own work um i'm going to use like more i'm going to use more of those elements in the future uh and i i just think it's interesting the way like i hear other people talk about it i also have plans for like a, a book after this book that definitely will be more like it will be considered speculative um i've already like created like a little synopsis of it um yeah, and so oh, wow, I, that's a that's a big teaser right there. I love that. Yeah, yeah, it is. I think it's just it's something that's like in me, and it's it. I hope readers can like adjust to like different kinds of books from a writer like me. Um, and that, again, like we're bringing up the reader, and I'm like, I think they will. I think that that's it's nice to have writers that vary what they do. But yeah, I, it's definitely on the horizon for me. That's okay. I did not actually know that about your next next book. Um, that's really exciting. Uh, I, I'm like dying to hear more about it, but I imagine you're keeping it under wraps for now. Yeah, I mean, I haven't like written the actual sentence of it. <laughs> I just thought of it. <laughs> but yeah, <laughs> it's it's secret for now. <laughs> All right. Well, I, I know that myself and I'm sure many other listeners of this pod are waiting with uh, bated breath over the next few years for that to come out. Um, yeah, so... I, I I mean, I'm not saying that we're done talking about all of this. I think it can sort of circle back. But, you know, I'm curious. I've got you here. You've had a really interesting couple of years um, and a quite successful couple of years, I would say. And like we got a lot of people listening to this pod, myself included, who are working on uh, various writing projects, who are writers, who are trying to figure out, you know, how the writing works, how being a writer works, all of these various things. I mean, just in general, like, is there is there stuff that you want to say to that crowd? It doesn't have to be related to fantasy or sci-fi, just like general wisdom you've picked up. Yeah, <laughs> I guess some of my general wisdom is uh, write, actually do the writing. Um, there's been a lot of times where I haven't been able to write in my life. I've I always had to have other jobs up until recently. Um, writing's become my full time job. And there were times where I was like, you know, an office a manager or like the front desk girl at a zipline place. And it was really hard to feel like a writer in those situations. Um, but I, I could always like, you know, gather that, um, that strength a little bit if I would make sure I was writing on a regular basis. Um, another, another thing I want to share is that like, it took me 
it took about like seven years to eight years in order for me to get a book deal with the the books that I, I had been working on. And so throughout a lot of that time, I always had this goal in mind to be, become published. And I thought like, oh, that will change everything. I'll feel like an author. I'll finally be a writer. And I, I think once everything started changing, I realized how much of myself I still am. Like I am still the person for seven or eight years who, who wasn't able to publish their books. And so I think like if you're on your journey and you haven't yet gotten your book deal or you haven't published your first book, like just know that like you you are still like going toward a target. And once you get there, you're not going to change. So it's it's kind of hard to do this, but like cherish the time before it actually happens because you'll never get another first time. Is that like the old cliche? <laughs> but once you do, once you do get thrust into like now I'm a published author, it does it does change a little bit, but you'd be surprised like how much of you doesn't change. So I guess that's my overall wisdom <laughs> to share. <laughs> I thought that was great. It, it took up something that I've thought about a, a lot recently. I, as you know, I've been toiling away the last few years and and trying to build towards, you know, publishing a first novel. Um, still working on it. And I and I think like that's something that I've tried to instill in myself lately is like, well, yeah, I mean, that'll be a big milestone. But like I also will be the exact same person. Um, and of course, being me, I always couch it as like I'm like, well, you know, uh, it's funny. I, I get prickly. I'm like, yeah, it's funny how some people will treat you a certain way when you're an unpublished author. And then if you make that leap, it's like, well, I'm still the exact same dude as I was when you were condescending to me. But that's that's me being defensive, you know? Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah you, know. you should. I have like a, you know, an IRA list. No, I was kidding. <laughs> like, <laughs> you should. Speaking of a sci-fi reference, the fantasy reference. Um, no, I definitely do remember all the situations I was in where like people treated me pretty poorly because I was unpublished. And I'm like. So it helps you become more kind when you do get published and you shouldn't need help to be kind, but sometimes you do. <laughs> yeah. And that's, I, I think that this is something that writers should talk about more in public is like, even if you're a really generous person, it's hard not to kind of have it seared into your memory all the times that people have like treated you like you were a moron or a fool for thinking you're going to publish a book. And it's like, well, it's like, I don't know, you know, you can, I don't know if I'm going to publish a book in the future or get hit by a bus tomorrow. But it's like, do you really want to go around treating everyone who thinks he's trying to do this like they're a complete idiot? I don't think it's very productive. <laughs> no, um, and I, I think it speaks to the thing we're talking about, like you're still the same person. Like nothing changes about human beings because they do something that you deem more worthy. Like they're still the same person. So yeah, there's no reason to treat aspiring writers like crap. <laughs> yeah, and I think you're reminding me that I need to, when I, you know, when I run into people we're like in their early twenties or whatever, and are starting out. Like I, I probably need to be nicer. Like it's always tempting to just, you know, even though I haven't published a book yet, it's always tempting to like r just basically give them the speech about how hard it is to be a writer. And I think the thing I have to remind myself is like they've probably heard that before. I mean, maybe it's the first time they've heard it, but like you know, it, <laughs> it's not as if it's not ambiently out there in the culture that this is a hard thing to do and a hard thing to be. So yeah, I mean, I think finding more grace is something that I also want to work on too. Um, I also like to go to something you said as well. It's like that, that having, having achieved that makes it easier to be kind. I always thought it was interesting how like there's an expectation that's shifting now where it was like, it used to be that accomplished artists, especially male artists were not only allowed to be just total dickheads. They were almost encouraged to do so that that was part of the artist's mystique. And it's like, 
why is that? It's it should be actually much easier to be graceful and generous once you've succeeded. <laughs> yeah, and it's fun. Um, it's like it's fun to like be nice and be helpful for people. And yeah, I think that like it reminds me like we were saying like Bob Dylan like in Don't Look Back like how over the top mean he is <laughs> like all the time. Um, but I, yeah, I think that like if you achieve a certain level of fame, it is hard probably to be, to be supportive and kind like, you know, on call at all hours like that. But at the same time, it's like, no one's forcing us to write books. Like we're really lucky that we get to do this and just, just be supportive of other people who are crazy enough to want to do it too. (laughs) Yeah. I think that's a really, really great ethos. And I'm trying to, uh, I'm trying to, you know, internalize this all right now. Um, so, <laughs> you know, I mentioned the name of your book, Sabrina and Karina. I recommend it to everyone. Um, honestly, go get this one. It's, it, I, I recommend things a lot on this show, but like, this is one of the more ironclad uh, recommendations I'll make. I, you know, you, you've been plugging this book a lot, I realize, but I'm going to ask you to plug it a little bit more here for our audience. Can you tell them a bit about it? My pleasure. I love talking about my book. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, so I, uh, Sabrina and Karina is a collection of 11 short stories that are all focused on uh, chi- mixed Chicanas of an indigenous background who are from Colorado and Southern Colorado. Um, the book takes a look at violence against women, gentrification, um, family, community ties, and all my protagonists are women, which is something that male interviewers often ask me, how on earth did you come up with 11 short stories about women? Uh, but I did. People ask you that? Really? <laughs> yeah, I get asked all the time, like, why do you write about women? And I'm like, why are you asking me this strange question? <laughs> um, I am a woman. Okay. Uh, yeah, so the it's a collection of short stories. Um, and yeah, I think. I think you'll like it. Um, sometimes I'm funny even, but yeah, <laughs> that's my plug about my own book. Yeah. Kali is very funny. She's also really good at plucking at your heartstrings. Um, in, in, uh, I, I, I don't, I don't want to, uh, analyze her book too much right in front of her while she's sitting here, but like, it's, yeah, it's awesome. I mean, uh, it's, it's really emotionally affecting. And like you said, it touches on some terrain that has not been covered much in major publishing. Um, so it's, yeah, it's, it's a fascinating, good time. And you have a novel coming out next year. Yeah. I'd say like 2022 sounds more likely at this point. Um, but yeah, I have a novel. I'm, I'm working on revisions now. And, uh, Connor's mom, Allison Hagee actually was one of my professors when I was doing my MFA. So that's, you know, I just had to tell them. That. <laughs> <laughs> that's in fact how Kali and I know each other, it turns out. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. Uh, thanks for the shout out for my, for my dear mother. She's probably gonna listen to this. So, Hey mom. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, that's, I think that's, you know, honestly, it's a really nice kind of tight, um, concise interview we've done. Uh, is there anything else that you want to add or we didn't, didn't really get into this time? No, I, I loved it. And thank you so thank much. Thank you so much. This has been really great, Kali. Take care. Bye-bye, everyone. <laughs>